thankful to continue our study. We're going to be looking at the beginning of verse 9 today in Jude. I was telling um, Brother Andrew that I had a crisis moment yesterday when I was putting together the outline and I realized it was too long and I had to break it up. So this is why we're looking at Jude 9a this morning and not the whole verse. <clears throat> if you recall from last week, we started uh, part one of illustration to accusation. We've moved from that point in the book of Jude where he had been giving illustrations of God's judgment in the past and is now unveiling these false teachers, these hidden reefs in their love feast, these false teachers who have gathered among them and he's pointing them out specifically. So he's moved from illustration to accusation. This is part two of that message. The general outline for this verse will be three in part. Great, greater example, greater wisdom, and greater judgment. But today we're going to be looking just at greater example. That would be verse 9a. Some of the topics that we're going to cover just in this one verse, reoccurring topics in Jude, tradition, sola scriptura, the inspiration and sufficiency of scripture, spiritual warfare, the priesthood of every believer, the gospel, and living in light of the coming judgment. So much packed in just one verse. The general objective of today's sermon is going to be this, to not only be reminded of the light we have in Scripture alone, the infallible light that we have in Scripture alone, but to be strengthened and comforted by the protection of our King in the light of our enemies and the continual breaking that we do each day concerning His law. That's the general objective, to be strengthened and comforted by the protection of our King. So now that you have your Bibles open to Jude, and we're going to be looking at the greater example, let us read, starting in verse 5 to give us context as we go to verse 9. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. And here's our verse. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Let us ask the Lord to help us 
interpret, apply, and see Christ in this text. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would help us now as we consider this verse, Lord, as we consider what you have in store for us this morning. Would you give me the ability to do so, Lord, in clarity and spirit and in truth? And may you grant all those who gather here this morning receive it in humbleness and love for Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by talking about, as an illustration, a movie that many of you may have seen, The Fiddler on the Roof. The storyline is a drama set in the form of a musical. It takes place at the beginning of the 20th century. Jews and Orthodox Christians live in the little village of Anatevka in the pre-revolutionary Russia of the Tsars. I see some of you already smiling. I think you may have seen this movie. Now, among the long-held practices of the Jewish community, there was what is called arranged marriages. And this movie concerns the village matchmaker and one of the five daughters of a poor milkman of the village named Tavi. The movie begins in the early morning, still dawn, with the fiddler playing on the rooftop. Tavi, probably up early milking the cows, appears and begins the prologue for the whole film, breaking what is commonly called in movie and television the fourth wall. Tavi starts talking to you the viewer. He starts to explain his little village, their ways and customs, and why it is that the fiddler is playing that song on the roof. As he continues to defend why it is that he is up there, you begin to realize Tavi's not just talking about the fiddler, but all of the people living there in the village of Anatevka, explaining that every one of them is a fiddler on the roof. Now, after more explanation, poor Tavi asks this rhetorical question. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Do you remember? Tradition. And then begins a very entertaining song that you have to hear for yourself. Now, as Christians, we have traditions too, don't we? But they are not what keep our balance. For that, we look to Scripture alone. In this sermon, we're going to be confronted with traditions, but must stand on divine revelation if we are to keep our balance. We are not fiddlers on the roof. And I truly believe that as we do so, looking to the scripture alone for balance, we will be singing a song of praise to our king in our hearts for what he has done, what he is doing, and what he has promised to do for us, his people. Amen. Well, let us begin to look at tradition. I want to start by reading you some Jewish tradition. We talked in the book of Jude previously about the book of Enoch, which Jude actually quotes, and how it was an intertestamental book, how it's apocryphal, it's not scripture, and yet it spoke to the things that I believe Jude, or Jude is speaking to concerning the angels but also concerning the coming of Christ. But now, many believe that Jude in this verse is leaning on another apocryphal work, something called the Assumption of Moses. This is a book that was not written in the intertestamental period, but rather written in the first centuries A.D., a Jewish work, and has direct reference, many think, 
to this verse about the devil arguing with Michael, the archangel, about the body of Moses. So I want to read you this Jewish tradition, and we'll continue the sermon. Joshua accompanied Moses up Mount Naboo, where God showed Moses the land of promise. Moses then sent Joshua back to the people to inform them of Moses' death, and Moses died. God sent the archangel Michael to remove the body of Moses to another place and bury it there. But Samael, the devil, opposed him, disputing Moses' right to honorable burial. The devil brought against Moses a charge of murder because he smote the Egyptian and hid his body in the sand. But this accusation was not better than slander against Moses, and Michael, not tolerating the slander, said to the devil, May the Lord rebuke you, devil. At that, the devil took flight, and Michael removed the body to the place commanded by God, where he, Michael, buried it with his own hands. Thus, no one saw the burial of Moses. Tradition. The Assumption of Moses is a Jewish apocryphal work, as I mentioned. One scholar named James Charlesworth writes, The date and the composition has been a subject of considerable controversy. Most critics today correctly place the original sometime in the opening decades of the first century. Now, when you hear that apocryphal work, when you hear this Jewish traditional text, again, which is not scripture, is this what Jude is talking about? It sure sounds like it. It sounds like this is exactly what Jude is quoting. Now, if this is correct, the assumption of Moses isn't as old as the book of Enoch, but it is possible that it's cited by Jude, who was writing, remember, in our introduction to this whole book, sometime in the mid-60s. So if this was written, the assumption of Moses, sometime in the first century, in the opening decades of the first century, and Jude wrote in the mid-60s, well, it stands to reason that Jude had this work, his Jewish hearers knew of this work, and he's using it as an illustration. It's possible. Might be surprised to learn or uh, interested to learn that Clement of Alexandria, a Christian theologian writing in the second century, takes this approach. He cites the assumption of Moses as what Jude is talking to here, and so does Origen in the third century. Seemingly, someone named Didymus of Alexandria in the fourth century also believed the same. But I want us to remember this. The only copy of the Assumption of Moses that exists today is one single Latin manuscript, which is dated after the year 500. Now that leaves open the question as to when it was actually written. Sadly, one-third to 50% of this text is missing. And guess what part is missing? The text about Moses' burial. So all of this, what I just read to you, is pieced together from early church father quotations and other extant copies of other ancient works, but we don't have a single copy of the Assumption of Moses with this section in it. Does it negate the fact that Jude could be alluding to this? I think there is something more scriptural that we can understand and we can gain from what Jude is writing in verse 9 without having to depend on the Assumption of Moses, the tradition. I think we have something in Scripture that is much brighter and much clearer, and much confirming. So now we're going to begin to look at 9a. Read with me. Simply, Jude says, But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued 
about the body of Moses. There are two historic and long-lasting debates around this one verse. Now, this might be the most difficult text in the book of Jude. I've had the privilege of wrestling with Daniel. We had some difficult passages in Daniel. I'm not sure which is more difficult, to be honest, Daniel's 70 weeks or this passage in Jude. The first debate revolves around Michael, and the other debate revolves around the body of Moses. So as I was saying in the beginning, I originally was going to talk about this whole verse today. I couldn't with a reasonable time restraint. So I want to just spend today looking at, but Michael, the archangel. Now, I know many of us have heard of Michael, the archangel, and from this pulpit when we were going through the book of Daniel especially. But there are some new faces. There are some uh, new members uh, since we spoke last, and I want to unpack it further. So some of this may be review, but I think that it will be encouraging for us all. So I want to ask the question, who is Michael? Who is Michael the archangel? Clearly, that's a character in the assumption of Moses. That's someone that is being specifically referenced here. Jude is using it as a, another kind of an example as he's bringing his accusation against these false teachers. <clears throat> We've covered this issue during our time in the book of Daniel because both Michael and the angel Gabriel showed up there, if you remember. So I want to say this from the beginning. And I've said this before. <clears throat> this is not a confessional doctrine. What we're going to learn from this verse today is not something that is spelled out in our confession. This is my conviction based upon my study of the text. There are various theologians who agree with what I'm going to preach today from this verse 9a. And there are many theologians who will disagree from verse 9a. But be a Berean. You search the scriptures for yourself. But it's my responsibility as the pastor, as the teacher, to explain this text to you. So I cannot just gloss over, but Michael the archangel. But it's incumbent upon me to give it to you in context. So, let's begin. Who is Michael? How would you answer that question? Is Michael one of seven archangels? Now, first Enoch, again, which was cited by Jude, quoted by him, mentions seven. Seven archangels in the book of Enoch. Michael, Raphael, Gabriel, Uriel, Seraquel, Raguel, and Ramiel. Another intertestamental book, Tobit, has this particular verse in Tobit 12.15, where Raphael comes to Tobit. I am Raphael, one of the seven angels who stand in the glorious presence of the Lord, ready to serve him. The earliest Christian tradition you may be interested to find from Pseudo-Dionysius from around the late 5th century gives them as Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, Uriel, Kamiel, Jophiel, and Zadokel. There are some different names there but still seven. You can see these seven archangels in the glass windows at St. Michael's Church in Brighton. 
Now, in the Anglican tradition, there are four archangels. From left to right, Gabriel, Michael, Uriel, and Raphael. You can see those in the stained glass window at the Hall in Munster. What about today? What does Christian tradition hold today? If someone says to you, how many archangels are there? Today, Christian tradition holds that there are only two archangels. What are their names? Michael and Gabriel. But brothers and sisters, I would uh, be not doing you a service if I didn't tell you this one important detail. There is only one angel called an archangel in Scripture. Michael, not Gabriel. Gabriel is never called an archangel in Scripture. Now, I've told that to people before, and they say, oh, no, 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 that can't be. It is. Gabriel is never called an archangel in Scripture. Only Michael is called an archangel. So let's start here. What does archangel mean? Well, arch means chief. And we learned this previously from Jude. Angel means messenger. Now, there's a broader semantic range to these uh, two words, but simply put, arch means chief. An angel, uh, I'm sorry, uh, angel means messenger. So what does archangel mean linguistically? Chief messenger. That's what the name archangel means. Chief messenger. Now interestingly, what does the name Michael mean? We've talked about this before in Daniel. The name Michael means he who is like God. He who is like God. So, Michael, the archangel, literally translates to this meaning. He who is like God and is his chief messenger. That's what Michael, the archangel, means. So if we're looking at Jude 9a and we read, Now Michael, the archangel, what we're hearing is Jude saying, But he who is like God and is his chief messenger. There are only three books which refer to Michael by name. Do you know them? Well, I already gave one away. Daniel. We're in one right now, right? Jude. What's the third? Revelation. Let's just have a cursory look at these books. Daniel in 12.1. Speaking of the end of the age, it says this. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Now, when you hear that language of the end of the age, a great distress that will come upon the earth that has never been, and people's names written in books. Any of us who have spent time in the book of Revelation will hear bells ringing in our heads. Oh, this is spoken of in the same language by the Apostle John. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Now, is it a coincidence? Well, we, 
No, it's not a coincidence. <laughs> Uh, it, we shouldn't, it shouldn't escape our notice that Michael appears in Daniel and Revelation. And we have texts being brought over from Daniel right into Revelation. The divine author wants to point this to you. He's pointing this out to you. Because in Revelation 12, 17, it says, And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. In our time in Daniel, we pointed out that Michael, in Daniel, guards over the people of Israel. That's what is said of him. And we also learn in Revelation 12 that this same Michael himself has angels. Michael and his angels. I hesitate because I don't know if I want to go to this verse yet, but I, I want to bring it up here lest it get lost. When we speak of our Lord Jesus Christ, is there ever a place where he is cited as having angels at his disposal? Many of us may remember in Matthew 26, 53, in that garden, when Peter takes out that dagger and cuts off Malchus's ear, miraculously picks up that severed ear and puts it back on his face. And he says, put your swords away. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? I don't want to spend a lot of time on it now, but I want to say that I believe there's a connection between Matthew 26, 53 and Revelation 20, verse 12. I'm sorry, Revelation 12, verse 7, where Michael and his angels are waging war with the dragon, where the one who is like God and his chief messenger and his angels is waging war with the dragon. We have both in this context in Jude 9. We have Michael and we have the devil, and they're in conflict. And before we're done, we're going to see more that Revelation has to say about Jude 9 and the context that I believe is there. But... I want to talk now about another mysterious figure that we find in the Old Testament. The mysterious figure of the angel of the Lord. You may have heard of the angel of the Lord if you've read your Old Testament. No doubt you have. The angel of the Lord appears in Genesis to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The angel of the Lord appears to Moses in the book of Exodus, even in the burning bush. The angel of the Lord appears to Balaam in the book of Numbers, appears to Samson's parents in the book of Judges, appears to Joshua, the son of Nun, in the book of Joshua, appears to David in 2 Samuel, appears to Elijah in 1 Kings, appears to Joshua the high priest in Zechariah. More to come on that. It's almost like the angel of the Lord is a thematic role. He keeps popping up over and over and over again in the Old Testament. What do we know about this angel of the Lord? We know this. He's worshipped. The angel of the Lord is worshipped as God. The angel of the Lord is called God in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord is called Yahweh in the Old Testament. On, on that, almost all theologians agree. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is a Christophany or a theophany. In other words... 
It isn't novel to believe that Scripture refers to our Lord Jesus Christ, hear me appropriately here, as the angel of the Lord. Not a created angel. Not a created messenger. But rather, God himself. Condescending to us through an accommodated messenger, the second person of the Trinity, which is appropriate, for he is the one who covenanted to assume human flesh in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, for our good and for our salvation. So it's not novel to, to associate Christ with the angel of the Lord, but it sounds novel to associate Christ with Michael, the archangel. Remember what it said in Daniel chapter 20, uh, 12, verse 1? that Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. Listen to, to Psalm 34. We've said it many times. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. So Michael camps around and protects God's people, and the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Interesting. Interesting. The angel of the Lord, I believe, is Michael, who stands guard over the people of God. If it is true that the angel of the Lord is Jesus, pre-incarnate, a Christophany, then it should not be scandalous that the archangel, the chief angel, is none other than the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. You might say, okay, a lot of time in the Old Testament. I know from hermeneutics that I should interpret the old, in the light of the new. And we should do that. 1 John. We spent time there and we talked about this. I made a reference back to Psalm 34 when I preached 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. Listen to verse 13 in context. These things I have written to you, says the Apostle John, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And then he goes on to say this in verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins. But he who was born of God, that is the one who is begotten of God, keeps him. And the evil one does not touch him. Here we have the Apostle John talking about the divine protection that we have by Jesus. The one who is born of God. The one who is begotten of God. He keeps his people. Remember what Psalm 34 said? The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he rescues them. Remember what Daniel 12.1 said? Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. The begotten Son of God is the angel of the Lord, the archangel Michael, who is like God and is his chief messenger, who stands guard, encamps around, and keeps the people of God. Now, interestingly, there is another place in the New Testament where the term archangel is used. Do you know where that is? It has to do with the return of Christ. Remember what we read in Revelation? Michael and his angels fighting against the devil and his angels? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself 
will descend from heaven with a shout. Now, who is that? Who is the Lord himself who will descend from heaven with a shout? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen to what it says next. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. They say, okay, fair enough. Jesus descends at the end of time with the voice of the archangel accompanying him. It's Michael with Jesus coming down. But listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So if you ask Jesus in the Gospel of John, whose voice will the dead hear when you return? It's the Son of God. If you ask Paul in 1 Thessalonians, whose voice will they hear when, G when the Lord himself descends from heaven? He'll say, oh, it's the voice of the archangel, the chief messenger of God. Now, I believe we can apply John 5.25 near and far in context. Listen to what Jesus said again. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. I believe he's saying the time is coming. The hour is coming. He's talking about his return on the clouds and glory. But now is, is referring to all those who hear the voice of Christ and are brought to spiritual life, regeneration through the proclamation of the voice of the Son of God. We hear the voice of Christ and are brought to spiritual life. There were those who physically heard the voice of Christ in the first century and were brought to spiritual life. How do we hear the voice of Christ and are brought to spiritual life? It's in his word. We know the saying, if you want to hear the voice of God audibly, read your Bibles out loud and you hear the voice of Christ Yes, life is brought by the voice of the Son of God. Now, as we await his return, and then at his return, our bodies will rise from the grave with the audible voice of our Lord in our ears. I'm reminded of, I think it was Fanny Crosby, a great hymn writer who was blind. Someone correct me later if I'm wrong about this, but I think it was Fanny Crosby. And she was blind her whole life. And she wrote the most amazing hymns. And this dear sister in the Lord said, the first person that I'll ever see with my own eyes is Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, the first voice that you will hear with your ears in your new bodies is the voice of Jesus Christ. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Should stop right there and just have the Lord's Supper. This is a difficult doctrine about the archangel Michael because of, what did Tavi say? 
tradition. Tradition. But I hope I've given you at least a little bit more than tradition. In fact, I hope I've given you a lot more than tradition. What I've been seeking to do is giving you the scriptures so that you can hear the voice of Christ and hear what the scriptures say about the Lord, the angel of the Lord, and how he encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. If you're able, turn to the book of Revelation and turn to chapter 12. Remember the context, and I'm going to unpack this more in the next sermon in Jude 9. But remember, the context is the archangel Michael disputing with the devil over the body of Moses. Now, we're going to interpret that later, the body of Moses. But there is a dispute taking going on between Michael and the devil. And this, again, will be brought out in further detail in the next sermon. The devil is the one who accuses. And even in the apocryphal work of the Assumption of Moses, remember what the apocryphal work said? That the devil was disputing with Michael about the body of Moses because Moses killed a man in Egypt. In other words, Moses is a murderer. Moses broke the Mosaic law. Moses doesn't deserve an honorable burial. Moses doesn't deserve heaven. Moses does not deserve salvation. It's as if the devil is saying, I know what the standard is. It's perfection. And whether it's Job, whether it's Moses, or brothers and sisters, whether it's you, you do not deserve heaven. And the devil accuses on that basis. That's what I think is going on in Jude 9. The devil is accusing on the basis of the law. And look at chapter 12 in the book of Revelation, starting in verse 7. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon who was thrown down, the serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan, again, we have both characters here from Jude 9, the devil and Michael, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven, saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. Listen, he who accuses them before our God day and night. What is he accusing on the basis of? The law. What is the devil accusing on the basis of in Jude 9? Again, I believe it's the law. And Michael is there, and the devil is there. But our Lord encamps around the faithful, all those who fear him, and he rescues them. The great prince of true Israel stands guard over us as a people. As John says, 
He who is begotten of God keeps us, and the evil one does not touch us. In conclusion, Jesus is an ever-present help in times of danger. He has always, always, brothers and sisters, encamped around the faithful. And lo, he is with us even until the end of the age, even until his return. And Christ not only affords us victory over sin and the devil, but life and comfort and peace. The peace which surpasses all understanding and that which the world does not have or know. That's what our Lord Jesus Christ gives us. Only in Christ are we safe from the accusations and condemnations of the law. That law which condemns you. Everybody in this room. The law condemns us all. But in Christ we are safe from the accusations of the law. For in him alone is righteousness and forgiveness. And it's freely offered, brothers and sisters, and children who gather with us, to anyone who will call upon his name in faith. What a beautiful picture we had last week of that in baptisms. I want to end with the words of a wise theologian named William Bridge. He says this, As Jesus is the Lord, treasurer of all our graces, so he is also the Lord, keeper of all of our comforts. And therefore, when God is pleased to give any comfort to you, go to Jesus and say, Lord, keep my comforts for me. Keep my evidences for me. Keep my assurance for me. You must not only depend upon Christ for graces, but also for comforts, and as well for the keeping as for the getting of them. Amen? The only reason why any of us remain Christians, brothers and sisters, is because the Lord keeps us. He encamps around those who fear him, and he rescues and delivers them. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We recognize, Lord, the difficulty of this passage in Jude. We recognize, Lord, the difficulty of wrestling with tradition and your word. Lord, help us to be good Bereans and search the scriptures to see whether these things are so today. I pray, Lord, that you would strike from the memory of everybody here anything that I have said that is not aligning or flowing from your word, but the things that are, Lord, I pray that you would knit them into the hearts of your people for encouragement and comfort, that we would see our Lord Jesus Christ all the clearer, that we would hear his voice today all the clearer as we wait for the coming of our Savior on the clouds when we will all hear his voice with a renewed mind, with a renewed body, on a renewed earth. Oh Lord, we pray for that day to come quickly. We ask that you would save those that we love in the intervening period and save all those for whom you love, the elect that you have chosen from all before the foundation of the world. Oh, Lord, we thank you for being the treasure of all of our graces and also the keeper of all of our comforts. We pray in your Son, Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.